Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I'm going to try that. I'm going to look for a response this morning just because I need it. Good morning, everybody. All right. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you for being here this morning, making your way here to Grace Point Church. Good to see so many of you. And um, online, I want to welcome in our Facebook audience. Glad to have you guys here with us. Thanks for joining in. Feel free to comment or like. Um, don't dislike. I don't think you're even allowed to on Facebook, but glad to have you here with us. Those listening on podcast later, thanks for doing that as well. But you found us in part two of a series that we're calling Follow Me. Um, it's Jesus' invitation to life. We're looking at some stories that Jesus told to help us engage how the kingdom of God works. And this morning, I wanted to kick off this second part of the series by talking about a story from my childhood that I really enjoyed um, from the Little Golden Book series. That's how I came to know. It was actually a book that was written, a story that was written in 1837 by a guy that many of you will know named Hans Christian Andersen. Well, here's the story that I came to know called The Emperor's New Clothes. Anyone ever read this book before, Little Golden Book? Yeah? I remember being emotionally connected to the embarrassment of it for the, uh, the emperor, if you know the story, that these two swindlers came along who decided to, to tell the emperor, who was in love with himself and is in love with the way that he looked, who loved to try on a new set of clothes every day, that, that if you were to, to hire us and pay us this X amount of dollars in gold, then we will, we will um, you know, sew for you, we'll make for you some invisible clothes that will only be seen by people who are competent to hold their positions. And so this certainly, you know, this, this got the emperor going, and he hired these people, as Hans Christian Andersen writes. And, and through the course of trying to make these clothes, they would go in and check on them, and the emperor would send his courtier in there to check, and he'd come back, and he wouldn't see a single thing. But being afraid to acknowledge that he couldn't see it, lest that imply that he doesn't know what he's doing for his job or he's incompetent, he would report back how beautiful the texture was, how, how incredible the colors were, and how much it popped. And finally, it came time for the emperor to see these invisible clothes, and he, of course, couldn't be seen to be incompetent. And so because everybody else agreed they were beautiful, he did too. And then the, there came the time for his parade into the town, and he paraded into the town. And, and as it's illustrated in the little golden book, that's what I remember, this kind of plump emperor with kind of full set of underwear walking through the streets and feeling this laughing, joking embarrassment of, of oh, that would be so terrible to see something like that happen until finally one child says something like, he's not even wearing any clothes, to which point finally the ruse is up and everyone realizes we have all been fooled and we have all given in to this power of our peers that can sometimes really ruin us. And as I think about this story, here's what I think about, that the power of our peers can be paralyzing sometimes. Pardon me for the peas. But the power of our peers can be paralyzing. The, the peers, all it takes is for people to say, this is a set of beautiful clothes even though I see nothing, and all of a sudden, there it is. Like, they just go that way. The power of our peers can be paralyzing. Have you ever felt this? Because I have. Even this week, I, I went on a, a group bike ride with people that I'd never met before, about 15 of us, and we rolled up to a stop sign somewhere near Coryville. And I didn't know the intersection, and one guy decided, as he looked left and looked right, he decided that it was time to go. And when I looked at the intersection, I thought, don't go. Like, this isn't the time to go. There's a car coming to turn left. But he went, and then the next person went, the next one, next one, next one, and then what did I do? Well, I went, because everybody else was going. And I was paralyzed to act in what I thought was the wrong thing to do. I did anyway, because the whole group was doing it. You ever felt that? The power of our peers can be paralyzing. It kept me from doing what I felt like was the right thing to do. And here's why this is important. Here's why this is important. Because sometimes, sometimes, what our group thinks can be more important than what our God thinks. 
that what our group can think, whatever our group is, whether that's family, whether that's peers in business, whether that's people that you go to school with, whether that's your history, your background, that your group, whoever you identify with, often that becomes the quickest, simplest, and most able filter to process what should I do and how should I act? What will my group think of me? Will they esteem me more, or will I be looked at as an outsider? We will often, not always, often think first of that, even more than what does God want me to do. And it's very difficult when the two come in contrast with one another. But this issue is so significant that Jesus actually engaged this conversation around how our groups form and the impact of our social circles and our behaviors in social circles, because the kingdom of God is fleshed out in day-to-day living. And so when we, when we aren't thoughtful about what God thinks instead of our group thinks, we aren't always representing the kingdom of God. Now, rather than me try to just make this case, I want to invite you to look in the scriptures with me to the, the gospel of Luke. It's going to be the third book in the New Testament, the right two-thirds of your Bible, but it goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And in Luke chapter 14, Luke begins writing, he recounts a story about how Jesus was engaging with some Pharisees at a party. We're going to pick it up in chapter 14, verse 1. And here's what Luke says. He says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Now, just to set up the context for a minute, this this is a Sabbath. This is a day of rest where other things are kind of set to the side. And Jesus goes into the house of a prominent Pharisee. So whoever this Pharisee is, he's a guy who is prominent. He is well-known. He's the invite that you want to get. So whoever he is, he's the guy who everybody knows. And as a Pharisee, Pharisees were the ruling religious party of the day who were well-respected. And so this is a well-respected, prominent individual in the community, a leader in the community, an influencer in the community. And Jesus is there. He went into the house, and he's being carefully watched. You think Jesus knows that? I'm sure he does. And then here's the issue. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Some versions call that dropsy, whatever you want to call that. But here's a man who is, who is ill, who needs medical help. On this Sabbath, in the middle of a group of Pharisees, where Jesus is being watched. And so then Jesus decides to do this. He asks the Pharisees and the experts in the law who are in the room a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. I wonder why they remained silent. Do you think they don't know the answer to the question? Or do you think they don't want to fall for Jesus' challenges? So they remain silent, and so in light of the people in the room who should know what they're doing, saying nothing, Jesus does something. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. So Jesus takes action where they sit there on their hands. And then, this is what he does. He turns to them and he asks them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? This is such a important moment. Get into the room for a minute, if you will, with all the people around in this prominent Pharisee's house. Everyone wants to be here, part of the party. This is a poignant moment. They're watching Jesus. All the influencers are there watching him. He puts it to them, should this man be healed? They say nothing. He heals him, sends him on his way, and then he asks them, come on, guys. Hey, you're in the room. What would you do? If your child 
fell into a well, or your ox fell into a well, something you valued, would you not, even if it's the Sabbath, would you not immediately pull it out? Well, here's what they know. Here's what's going on, just for some background for them. They're trying to process this question because they know the law, and then they know they've added to the law. And now they're trying to figure out who is Republican, who is Democrat, who is third party in the room. They're playing a political game. Here's, because here's what happened. The law was added to. Here's actually, I'm going to read to you, I'm going to quote from an ancient document called the Damascus Rule, written in this period of time in a community called the Qumran community. It was a more conservative Jewish law. Here's what it says. I'm going to read to you a direct quote. Let no beast be helped to give birth on the Sabbath day, and if it fall into a cistern or a pit, let it not be lifted out on the Sabbath. And so as the experts in the law are hearing Jesus' question, they're also reading the law in their brains, and they know, well, the law says I'm not supposed to do this, but you, Jesus, are here, and you're pushing this on me, and you're asking me a question, and I'm processing this, and I don't know where you are, he is, and I'm not sure. And so they had nothing to say. Just think about that for a minute. Let the weight of that hit you. They're asking... Hey, if your kid was about to die or seriously hurt and fell in a well on the Sabbath, would you save him? When they have nothing to say, can you believe that? That the religious leaders of the day would say, I don't know what I should do when someone is injured or potentially dying on the Sabbath because their rules had created a world where they said, in order to honor God, we need to maybe allow someone to die like that on the Sabbath. The power of their peer group was paralyzing. They were missing the humanity of their foolishness. They missed the human touch because they thought somehow along the line, I need to honor the Father so much by doing this. And the group think interpreted for them something that was very far from the heart of God, their heavenly Father. Jesus sees what's going on in the room, and he decides to tell two stories. He decides instead of being watched, he moves from being watched to being the one who observes and tells. And so look what happens next. When he noticed how the guests had picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. All right, in this parable that he's about to tell, you should know that in this culture, there's a culture of, um, I'm going to use this word, reciprocity, where I give to you and you give to me. That's just the way it's going to be. If I invite you to my house, you better invite me to your house or you get shame, and that's just going to be the way it is. So it's a culture of reciprocity. I invite you, you invite me, I honor you, you honor me. That's the way that it should be. And also, these... In, in coming to a, a party like at the Pharisee's house, it was almost like when you go to a wedding in days like today, that often seats are assigned because of honor. When you're closer to the bridal party, you sit closer to the front, and when you're further, you kind of sit further back. We all know that's how it works, but that's exactly how it worked for the Pharisees when they were having this party. That in everybody's party, the better seats are reserved for the better people. And sometimes if there's 30 seats available at a party, and you're not sure if you rank number 1 to 30 on the guest list, you might think you're 15, but actually seat number 11 is available, and you might push up to seat number 11 just to push it a little bit and see if you can gain a little more honor in the eyes of the host, hoping that he won't embarrass you by asking you to move back down to 15 or worse, down to 18 or 20. That you might nudge it up a little bit because you're seeking honor in the eyes of the host. This is the way that that world worked. And so Jesus told this parable in light of that. He says this, when someone invites you 
to a wedding feast, do not take the places of honor for a more distinguished person than you may have been invited. That doesn't make sense to them. Goes on. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. Then he makes this comment, which you have maybe heard before. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. These seats are seats that we are still fighting for today, by the way. I am still fighting for these seats today, and I would argue that by default you might be too. That we are still fighting for these seats today. Not seats at a banquet necessarily, but seriously, we're fighting for the seats of honor in one another's lives. If you've ever been through high school and been kind of fighting for who gets to ride with them down to Dairy Queen? Who gets to be in the car with the cool people? Who gets to sit at the table with the cool kids in high school? Who gets to be around the people who are awesome? Who gets to be near and who gets to be known by? And make sure that you comment on social media on the cool people's posts. Make sure that you engage the right people because there are seats to be had and then there are people that are left behind. And it is the fighting for these seats that Jesus addresses as a core problem in the life of this community. And then he goes on, because all that he's done at this point is he's offended the guests. But now he turns directly to offend the host. Because sometimes we're guests in how we operate, but sometimes we're also the host. So Jesus goes on in verse 12, and he said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. And if you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This invitation to the poor is an absolutely wasted invitation in this context. If you're a party host in this context, why in the world would you invite the poor? Because they will never be able to invite you back. You know that, and they know that, Therefore, they can't come to your party. The reason they can't come is because if they come and then they get, don't reciprocate, they get more shame on themselves. And then you will have an empty spot at your table, and that's embarrassing when other people come and people have rejected your invitation. If you have 30 seats and you invite 25 who are poor or marginalized, and none of them come and your five other friends show up, you find nothing but shame and dishonor. So Jesus is telling them to do something that doesn't even make sense in their world. Why is that? Why is that? Because it's something that we all do even right now. That Jesus is pushing into this space of how we relate in social settings at all. This, this story, these parables for Jesus are not just parables of how we should treat people at Thanksgiving. 
for example. Make sure that around your table at Thanksgiving, you have your family and friends, and make sure that you invite someone who's marginalized. That would be great. Go ahead, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Is that why you think Jesus came to earth? <laughs> that he could just help us know how to have good Thanksgiving or Christmas meals? Hey, I'm all for reaching out during those seasons, by the way, but it goes deeper than that. Why would Jesus engage this, this issue? Why would he tell these stories about hosts and guests in this space? It's not just because he wants us to be friendly and kind in hosting people. He's engaging the entire way that we relate socially to one another and understanding the power of it to paralyze us and to miss the heart of a heavenly father. He understands that this host guest game that we play is powerful and it shapes us and it often displaces God's ideal for my group's ideal that often what becomes more important for me is what my group will think about how I vote, about how I worship, about who I hang out with, about how I respond to these challenging times, that my group becomes the most important people. And Jesus is seeing in the room of these Pharisees this, un this unfolding in such a profound way. The Pharisees want the honor of the people who come to their table. They want that honor from, from their guests, but then the guests want the honor from the host. And the highest value is these relationships and honoring shame, honoring and shame to the point that when pressed on, would you rather let your son or daughter die in a well than, than pull them out and potentially violate God's law? They are stuck and cannot even say, no, I would, I would save my child. What kind of question is that, Jesus? What kind of question is that? That's a simple answer. I would save my child. They can't answer because the power of their peer group is paralyzing. And if you have ever been stuck laughing at a joke that you shouldn't have laughed at, making fun of someone that you shouldn't have made fun of, not honoring someone who should have had it, taking credit where it shouldn't belong to you, if you've ever been in that world of regret because of the pressure of your peers, you know exactly what Jesus is doing here. He isn't just giving us dinner etiquette ideas that we can be nice people who invite the right people to our tables. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the power of our groups to transform the way we think and to push God's ideals out. Because if you're a Pharisee in that room and you say, Jesus, I would save my son from the well on that day. What kind of shame do you think would be on that man in that moment? Absolute rejection. He would lose his entire standing, his reputation, his family might dishonor him, but what would be the right thing to do? See, this is why I am convinced that often our group is more important than our God in how we react and how we respond to people. And Jesus is speaking into this space, and he gives it, it makes it incredibly clear, incredibly clear. He gives a north star, gives a North Star for how to orient our thinking, our decision-making, our day-to-day -day social interactions with each other. He puts it this way. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. This is not new for us to hear, but this is powerful. This is powerful to stop on and think about. Jesus is saying, love one another. Imagine, imagine if this principle were played out in the Pharisees who were in that room in that moment, played out in the community members who were in that room. 
Imagine if instead of thinking, ooh, what do the people around me think? Oh, if I answer this way, then I might get dishonored. Imagine if the North Star in that room were love one another. Then the answer to the question, what would you do if an ox or your child fell into a well? Immediately, even though everybody in the room would think you're a loser and a failure, because the guiding North Star is I'm going to love my neighbor rather than my seat. And it changes everything about how I respond. And this is the thing that Jesus is pushing on for, to be a kingdom-oriented person. All of a sudden, we need to love our neighbor more than we love our seat at the social tables that we get to pull up into. And so Jesus pushes on this, not because he wants us to be kind and friendly at Thanksgiving or Christmas, which I think we still should be, but it's much deeper than that. We can't be kingdom people until we're able to love our neighbor, not just want love from our neighbor. That despite what everybody thinks, I'm going to choose to love this neighbor, even if it means that the people around me will think I'm a total moron. Jesus gives us two ideas. It's real simple, and he just puts it right out there. He speaks to the, to the guests sometimes, and as I think about how I respond to this. Sometimes I'm a guest and sometimes I'm a host. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes I'm invited to a table. Sometimes I find myself being invited to a table, certainly for a meeting, but more importantly, even just in friendship, that I'm invited into certain friendship tables, and you are too. And when I'm functioning in the role of a guest, having been invited into a space to share life with somebody, to laugh at a story with them, to engage them on a conflict or challenge they're having, to just be with them presently, I'm being invited to their table as a guest. And here's what Jesus says, take a lower seat. Take a lower seat. Like, how do I fight this? What, what I'm pushing at? Jesus sees it in the room and he re recognizes what it is. He says, when you're functioning in the role of a guest and you're invited into relationships, take a lower seat. What does that mean? Here's how I would say it. It's a decision to value your God over your group. It's a decision to value your God over a group. It is a, it is a volitional decision. It's an intentional decision to say, I'm being invited into someone's life right now and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to value my God over my group. Here's what this looks like. Um, I've been on a school bus enough in my life to know I don't like to be on school buses, but I know that I have to be on school buses again. But on school buses, both as a child and now also as an adult, um, both in my coaching world and also just in, um, uh, what, what do they call it, when you're a field trip um, person at elementary school, I'm missing the word, you're a field trip chaperone. Thank you. I use my lifeline on that one. That's great that in that capacity, you see things that happen, and because you're an adult, you recognize what's happening in the room. Have you ever been a part of or seen the kids in the back of the bus kind of coming together for a joke or a story, kind of leaning in? Remember when people could be close to each other? Leaning in, right? Leaning in and telling a story. It's kind of funny, and then all of a sudden, a chaperone or an adult, or even worse, a kid that they're making fun of from the front of the bus comes back. What happens? It stops all of a sudden. And in that moment, in that space, it's an invitation to a seat. It's a banquet that you're having. It's a social banquet. Like, hey, I have something funny to say about the kid eight rows up. Come here. Look, can you believe the size of his nose and blah, 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 depending upon your age? Or can you believe blah, 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 the, what, what he did with that girl, blah, 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 blah? What is that? It's exactly this issue. It's an invitation to the seat. Come on, you show me honor by showing up. <laughs> I'm hosting a party here that's making fun of that kid up there, so come on, come on, come on. Be a part of my party here. 
And Jesus is saying, take a lower seat. It's a choice to honor your God over your group. What if you choose not to engage that moment? What if you choose to back up and say, I see what's happening here. You want my honor, so you feel better about yourself. I'll feel better about myself. We'll both feel better about each other, and then you know what will happen? We will be citizens of the emperor with no closed kingdom. That's exactly what we'll be. We'll be people who agree. Look at those beautiful clothes. They're great. We're, we're choosing to go along with a ruse. We're choosing to go along with something that isn't even true or right or godly. That Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Choose to take a lower seat. Back off for a minute. This is true on social media right now. I have friends right now, and you have friends too, who are expressing opinions who aren't mainstream opinions, aren't popular, one way or the other. And then I have other friends who make fun of them, who, who cast them out and say, they're absolutely insane. They're ridiculous. I can't believe they're doing this. I'm not even sure they're a Christian because of the views that they're representing. What's that an invitation to? It's an invitation to the seat. It's an invitation for me to join them at their banquet saying, this is the way that it should be. Please come along and sit with me. And it's an opportunity for me to take a lower seat and say, wait a minute, what would it mean to love my neighbor here? more than to love a seat. So Jesus speaks to me when I'm invited as a guest, but he also speaks to me when I'm invited as a host. And he puts it this way, invite others to your table. Invite others to your table. What I mean by that is this is a decision to engage the unengaged. It's a decision to engage the unengaged. It's the model of agape love here. It's a decision to say, there are people on this bus who are never going to sit back here in the cool seat, so I'm going to go sit with them. There are people that I work with who are never going to have the ear of the CEO of this company, but they have some good things to say, and I appreciate their perspective. I need to go invite them to the table. There are people in my family who are just crazy, but somebody needs to engage them. I need to hear them. I need to engage the unengaged. This is the invitation to the host of saying, don't just invite all of your friends to your parties all the time. Invite the poor. Invite the marginalized. Invite the disengaged. Because in so doing, you evidence the love of God for people. But I'll tell you what you don't get to do. You don't get to receive necessarily honor from your peer group. Your peers may not think you are a better person if you invite their enemies to your table. You will lose credibility in their eyes. And this is what Jesus is pressing on. The social relations that we share are so strong. They can be used for great good when aligned with the kingdom, but they can paralyze us into making decisions and treating one another in a, in a way where at some point along the way, what happened to the Pharisees can happen to us. And I still can't believe it. It's really hard for me to believe because I see the Pharisees as the evangelical pastors of their day. I don't see them as enemies and religious crazy people. These were the popular conservative voices, they were well-liked by the people in their communities. And there came a day when Jesus put a question to them that is so simple to answer, and they were stuck to answer it. Would you save your own child's life or risk potentially disobeying God on the Sabbath? Are you kidding me? If all the law and the prophets, if all of the commands of scriptures hang 
on love. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a simple, elementary question. What froze them? The power of their peer group paralyzed them. They didn't know what to do. They were stuck. Because all of a sudden, what if, what if, the jokes that my family tells at Thanksgiving, when we all lean this direction politically, or all lean this direction politically, we all think this about the pandemic, we all think this about the pandemic, we all say this about how church is going, this how business is going, everybody's leaning that way. That is a powerful thing, but it just isn't always a kingdom issue. It doesn't always orient us to the kingdom, and this is where Jesus says, don't invite, don't fight for seat number 11, when you're at seat 15, you're fighting for the wrong thing. Don't seek honor at that table. Don't love that seat more than you love your neighbor. And your neighbor might not even be in the room. And this is such a challenging, challenging moment that Jesus puts before me, and he puts before any person who calls himself a Christian and says, I want to follow Jesus. Is don't let your peer group paralyze you. Don't live in that regret I'm saying, you know what, there are days, there are seasons, there's moments where I pursued the honor of an additional seat over doing what I knew was right. Some of you already know that you should say something in your family gatherings, but you don't. Some of you already know that you should say something in your business, but you don't. Some of you already know you should say something about someone, a child that you, your kid goes to school with. Some of you in school right now know that you have friends who are being bullied, friends who are being marginalized, and you know that there, there are people who are treating them wrong, but you don't say anything because you're frozen by the power of your peer group. And the kingdom of God says, love your neighbor more than you love your seat. Choose to take a lower seat and invite other people to your table. This is the power of the invitation that Jesus gives. Not that we will fight for these ridiculous seats of honor as if we're citizens of the kingdom of the emperor with no clothes, <laughs> fighting to find honor in the eyes of the emperor who ends up wearing his underwear out into the city streets. What foolishness that is, that one day we would be paralyzed Wondering how in the world we got here, that we joined in, or we remained silent when people were being criticized, when people were being maligned. And we, the people who should love one another as Jesus gives us the new command, at times didn't. Not because we didn't know what to do, but because we were afraid of our peer group, that which can be incredibly, incredibly paralyzing. This is why Jesus says, take a lower seat. Invite other people to your table. Love your neighbor more than you love your seat. Jesus tells us another story about where we get our confidence from. That's a story that I want to get into next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time to be in your word this morning to revisit this powerful moment in Jesus' life at this party something that we can picture, something that we experience with great regularity. I pray that you would give us the courage to love, even when it means that we must love ourselves less, even when it means we must give up our honor, we must potentially be shamed because we've chosen to love our neighbor. We've chosen to invite someone else to our table. I pray that you would help us to live out these values of the kingdom no matter how hard it is, that we could be courageous fighters for love. 
no matter what. Especially now in this world, we need that. So I pray that you give us the courage to speak, to act, and the courage not to sit on our hands when we should be moving our feet. We love you, Father. We pray that you would help us, give us strength to care and love well. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.